Prepping Podcast. We're helping everyday people become prepared for whatever emergencies come our way. Where gear is good, but knowledge is better because the more you know, the less you have to carry. We're your hosts, Mark and Krista Lawley. Well, thank you for joining us today. We're glad you took your time to stop by and listen to the podcast. We really appreciate that. And we hope that you get something out of it that helps you along your prepper journey. If you've been listening to Practical Prepping Podcast for a little while, you understand that we focus on preparing for the events we are most likely to face, whether those are weather events, power outages, supply chain interruptions, shortages, and financial issues. We don't get off into the absurd And we've never really put any real time into aliens, zombies, asteroid strikes, EMPs, or nuclear war until now. Through watching world events and doing a lot of research, I've come to have some concerns about the growing possibility of a catastrophic failure of the electrical grid. Now, a catastrophic failure could be caused by a CME or an EMP, or even through sabotage. Now let's talk about some specifics. Just so we understand, and this may be a new term for some of you, CME is a coronal mass ejection. An EMP is an electromagnetic pulse. And an HEMP is a high-altitude EMP. Now let's look at some of the history of these and understand a little bit about these. A CME, a coronal mass ejection, it's a natural occurrence from the sun. Now, think about it like this for a moment. If you look at a pot of water boiling, you'll notice some little splatters of water coming out of that container of water that's being boiled, especially if you have it at a very high rolling boil. That's about like the surface of the sun, and the sun spits out CME energy all the time. It ejects some of that coronal mass. If you think about a soccer ball, if you're holding that soccer ball in your hand, You've got 360 degrees around that soccer ball in every direction, not only horizontally, but vertically on every axis. So that CME, that mass that is ejected from the sun, can go in any direction. Now, it's not a problem unless it comes directly at us, and they do that somewhat regularly. The effect is usually at most, minor communications issues. Sometimes we'll hear static on radio transmissions. It will often affect VHF and UHF transmissions. In cell phones, sometimes we get dropped calls. Sometimes we get service that Krista calls wonky. It's just not right. It's usually minor irritations that we get when it comes with a CME. However, in 19, uh, correction, in 1859, the sun belched big time. It's known today as the Carrington event. 
It was a solar CME. In 1859, we did not have an electrical grid and certainly no electronics. Most people didn't even notice any effect from the CME. However, we did have telegraph lines, telegraph wires, and they act or acted as giant antennas. And in 1859, some of the telegraph operators noticed it because they were shocked. Also, fires were set in and around some of the telegraph stations that were in place at the time. The Carrington event of 1859 would have destroyed our current electrical grid. Some believe it only affects the side of the earth that happens to be facing the sun when that energy gets here. Energy traveling through space generally travels in a straight line. However, on 13 March 1989, there was a solar storm that hit the Earth at 2.44 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, the area was in complete darkness, 2.44 a.m., yet it fried the Hydro-Quebec power transformers, and they lost power to six million people. NASA estimates that the likelihood of a Carrington-type event to be, get this, 10 to 12 percent per decade. It's been 16 decades since the Carrington event. You do the math. There are limited standards for CME protections, mainly because the power industry has resisted higher standards. And the standards that are there are lower than recorded naturally occurring events. Now let's look at some of the testing of EMPs, electromagnetic pulse. 1962, July 9, in an event called the Fishbowl Starfish Prime EMP, This was an EMP test by the United States, and it was the largest U.S. high-altitude nuclear test ever. A 1.4-megaton warhead was detonated at an altitude of 250 miles. Now, this detonation generated an EMP that damaged electrical systems in Hawaii, which was 1,450 kilometers or 900 miles away. Telephone company microwave links were damaged, and it even knocked out streetlights. From that very same test, there was EMP damage to electronics in New Zealand, which was 1,300 kilometers or 800 miles away, and it was line of sight from 250 miles of altitude. So we understand a little bit about what a CME and an EMP can do. And they're very similar. One is naturally occurring and the other is is man-made. So let's look at the possibility of an EMP. Now an EMP is a nuclear device that is detonated at altitude, something in the neighborhood of 250 to 300 miles above the surface of the earth. Now when we look at nuclear capabilities, There are eight countries of which we know that have nuclear warhead capabilities. Now get the number of warheads and who has these. Russia has over 6,300 warheads. The USA has over 5,800. 
China has around 320. The UK has around 215 nuclear warheads. Pakistan has 160. India has 135. Israel only has 90. But get this, North Korea has between 30 and 40 nuclear warheads. So we have something on the order of 13,000 nuclear warheads in existence in the world today. And some of those are possessed by what may not be the best of friends to the free world. Now let's look at these warheads. They're launchable any number of ways. They can be launched by ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. They can also be delivered by satellite. We really don't know who may have nuclear weapons orbiting the Earth in satellites. They can certainly be done with long-range missiles as well as short-range missiles. Now, short-range missiles can be launched from freighters. They can be launched from launching systems that are small enough to put inside of a cargo container that is transported every day across the seas around the world. One of these could be brought nearby a country that nefarious actors wanted to attack and could do that with a short-range missile. See, the technology doesn't have to be extremely advanced. They don't need a re-entry capability. The idea is to put it a couple of hundred miles above the Earth and explode the thing. And you don't have to have accurate missile guidance systems on that rocket. You just need to get it up into the air a few hundred miles above the Earth. Now, any nuclear-capable state could devastate a country without having to engage militarily. Now, anonymity would also be possible, which might prevent retribution. So if you're a nefarious actor in a rogue country and you want to attack uh, Europe or you want to attack the United States or any country... If you could get a missile nearby and launch it off of a freighter without being concerned about them figuring out who did it, what would be the possibility of some actor doing that? Now, there are other ways that the grid can go down. One is cyber attacks. We've seen this recently in some areas. The United States, Russia, and China have the capability to take each other's electric grid totally out by cyber attacks. You could also have sabotage attacks on extra high-voltage transformers. And those attacks could be made with rifles or with explosives. doesn't have to be high-tech. And if you lose, here in the United States, if we lost even a dozen key substations, that could cause the whole grid to go down. Now, let's look at some of the investigation that's been done on this in 2008, 2009, 2016, 2017. And I believe in around the year 2000, There were EMP commissions that were formed to study the effects of what an EMP or a CME would be. Now, the DOD, the Department of Defense, they've taken measures to assure 
that the U.S. strategic forces can survive and operate. Military has hardened their vehicles and some of their installations. They're not going to be put out of commission with an EMP or a CME. But there are no major efforts that have been made to protect the critical civilian infrastructure. Now, in 2017, the estimated cost of protecting the grid was approximately $2 billion. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, and it is for most of us. But it's not a whole lot for a government that spends it like it's just falling out of the air. But $2 billion is certainly far less than the cost of restoring the grid after a CME or an EMP. Now, let's just run down some of the, rec- uh, some of the recommendations of the commissions. And this is looking at several of the commissions. One is to establish an executive agent with the authority, accountability, and resources to manage protection and defense of infrastructures. See, part of the problem is nobody's been in charge. We've known what the problem was. There's been reports made to Congress, but nobody's been in charge of fixing the problem. And when nobody is responsible for it, nothing happens. Now, the commission also recommended that we implement cybersecurity for the electrical grid, including security against EMP, back to hardening the system. But nothing's been done. And we've certainly seen recently what can happen with cyber attacks. We've seen a pipeline taken down for ransom. We've seen a number of hospitals and governmental organizations. We've seen private businesses taken down and ransom paid into the millions to get that back. What if that person wanted to go against the electrical grid instead of a meat production company, what would happen? They've also recommended that there's the establishment of a presidential congressional commission supporting leadership to accelerate protection of critical infrastructure. They've also recommended the adoption of new standards to protect critical infrastructure and testing to failure of long replacement time equipment such as large power transformers. Guess who builds those transformers? China. Those transformers take generally about two years each to manufacture, and there are no spares sitting back there. Now, here's their threat assessment, and these words are chilling. The commission says that we have a present and ongoing existential threat from naturally occurring and man-made EMP. Present and ongoing. They also say that the blackout of the power grid and grid-dependent critical infrastructures such as communications, transportation, sanitation, food and water supply could plausibly get this last a year or longer. Folks, that's a threat. It would certainly disrupt most supply chains, and it would put the population back to living like our ancestors lived in the 1800s. Now, here's the problem with that. We've lost the skills that they had. 
1859, it would have taken out the power grid, but the folks alive at that time didn't notice. It didn't affect their daily life because they were accustomed to living without the modern conveniences that we have today. The commission also says that the result would be the death of as much as 90% of the population through societal collapse, disease, and starvation. Yet little planning or action has taken place. Now, let's look at some of the effects of a C, of an EMP and a CME. And they're very similar in what they would do. There may, from a CME, we may have varying degrees of damage. As we discussed, it happens regularly. Thankfully, most of what we encounter today is just minor inconveniences, static communication breaks for a little while. But an EMP would be totally devastating. Now, let's talk about if the electrical grid goes down. Now, all normal communications would be gone. Cell phones, thing of the past. Landlines, thing of the past. Internet, thing of the past. Think about sanitation. The sanitation plants are are controlled by computer and uses the internet. They also use power to do what they do. We'll have supply chain disruptions, food, water, fuel. It's going to, they're not going to have the trucks going to the grocery store, not going to have the trucks coming to bring the gas. Hey, listen, I just want to tell you about a couple of books that you need to add to your collection and give as gifts. I highly encourage that you go to Amazon and look up this title, Making Contact During Emergencies. This is information that may save your life or the life of someone you care about. If injured, lost, or found in a disaster or another type of emergency. This book was written by Mark and Krista Lolly. I'm Krista, and Mark is my husband. Book number two that we wrote that we're especially proud of and has gotten a lot of buzz is entitled Practical Prepping for Everyday People. This is a common sense guide on preparing for life's emergencies. And when we say practical prepping, we mean the type of emergencies you're going to find yourself in day in and day out. Car emergencies, dead batteries, flat tires, storm damage, the roof has gotten blown off, you find that you have no power, no electricity, no devices are working. These kinds of things are happening to somebody somewhere every single day. And we were astonished when we did a little research to find that a vast majority of people found themselves woefully unprepared for one or more of these types of emergencies. And particularly after this COVID year that we've experienced, I think a whole lot more of us are paying closer attention to things like grocery store supply chains, the ability to be able to buy gas, the ability to be able to move freely about, or what's going to happen if we do have to stay home for three weeks solid. Practical Prepping for Everyday People by Mark and Krista Lolly, also making contact during emergencies. Go to Amazon, look these up, add these to your collection. We sure appreciate it. You're also going to see a societal collapse. We've seen a number of times across the world where a city or a state, a large area, would lose power for two or three days. And in that period of time, we begin to see societal collapse. We begin to see people going out and looting, robbing, burning, doing all kinds of things. Now, we used to say something happened, you have about 72 hours before society begins to collapse. But with all of the social media today, I think you've got probably closer to 72 minutes 
when people begin to figure out we're going to be without power for a while. We're not going to be able to get food for a while. We're going to be seeing problems coming up from societal collapse rather quickly. Also, we can say bye to the banking system. Debit cards aren't going to work. Where you're going to try to buy things early on, they may accept cash. But all of the banking systems going to be gone if we had a, a serious CME or certainly an EMP. How about vehicles? Now, we've had varying reports on tests of this. Some say that cars will work fine. We don't have to worry about it. Some say that they'll stop, but they can be restarted. And some say that everything that's made after 1990 will be totally fried. Now, the EMP Commission tested a number of vehicles manufactured between 1986 and 2002. Every single one of them stopped, but most of them restarted. Only one of those vehicles was seriously damaged. Now, since 2002, and we're 19 years past that, even more microprocessors are used in vehicles today So there may be more that are totally fried. We keep an older vehicle here at the house. We actually have a couple. We have a 1984 pickup. And worst comes to worst, I have my grandmother's 1957 Chevrolet. No electronics except the battery. Well, does have an AM radio in it. My grandfather ordered it with an AM radio so my grandmother could ride down the road and listen to the radio. Now, speaking of electronics, it's said that A CME or an EMP would devastate anything with microchips. Part of that depends on the distance to the EMP. We could see varying degrees as you get further away from being right under that explosion. And it may depend on whether or not that item was protected or connected to the power grid. Power lines, see, will act as antennas for a pulse, much like power lines can act as lightning rods for lightning. They're likely to be hit. They will bring that power to them and send it on down the line. Now, we're probably going to see some damage to some backup power options as well, possibly generators, certainly UPSs on computers, and solar controllers. Solar panels themselves, it's not believed that they'll be damaged, but those solar controllers probably will be damaged as well. So if you're depending on solar power after a grid down situation from an EMP or a CME, probably need to get another solar controller and protect that. Speaking of that, let's talk about some of the preparations that we can make in case of an EMP or a CME. Now, first off, let's go back to the basics. Our normal long-term prepping prepares us to some degree. Food, water, heat, cooking, sanitation, security, medical. We need to continue with those efforts. See, those efforts protect us regardless of what the situation may be. Now, there is commercial EMP protection uh, equipment that's available for whole houses, for devices, for vehicles. But let me say, I've not tested any of that. I don't own any of that at this point. Kind of thinking it might not be a bad idea to begin to look at some of that. But at this point, I have not tested I've not done a lot of research on that protection equipment, 
So do your own research there. What I do know is that a Faraday cage can be used to protect equipment. See, a Faraday cage directs the pulse around the skin of the cage. There are lots of plans online for building Faraday cages, but basically it's a frame covered with a metal mesh. Copper is the ultimate conductor, but anything that's electrically conductive would work. Some folks build them out of metal galvanized trash cans and then use metal tape like is used for air conditioning and heating duct to make a good connection and a seal around where that lid attaches to the top of that galvanized trash can. You know these um, tins that some folks give for Christmas and for other holidays that come with popcorn in them and there'll be three or four different flavors Those make a great little Faraday cage, and you can sand the top of the edges to make sure that you get a good connection between the top and the can itself, and then you can tape that off with metal tape. Some say that an old microwave oven does a good job. Now, it contains the microwaves, and I don't know enough about the frequencies to say definitively of whether it would stop all of the energy that would affect any of the type of electronics that we might have stored in them. But there is a lot of information out there on the internet. You can do some research on that. We have a couple of old microwaves that we're not using as Faraday cages, but certainly couldn't hurt anything for us to do that. The question was asked the other day, do Faraday cages have to be grounded? The answer to that is no, they do not have to be grounded But they do need to be tested. Build one, and there's a couple of ways to to test that. One of the easiest is to take some type of a transistor radio, AM, FM radio, put it inside that Faraday cage, close it up, and if that radio stops playing, it passed the test, at least for that frequency. Some say that the frequency of like a two-way VHF, UHF radio and the frequency of a cell phone might not be covered in the same Faraday cage. So what I would suggest is that you put both in there. If the radio quits playing and your telephone will not receive a phone call inside that cage, then you're covered on both. Now, when you build it, you need to line the inside of it. None of your devices can be touching metal. You can line it with carpet. You can line it with cardboard or any other non-conductive material. Now, my idea here is to wrap the whatever item you're going to store. And I happen to be looking at a little two-way radio over here. And that wouldn't be a bad thing to put a few of those in there. But I like to take the original packaging, take the radio out of it, program the radio, take the battery off, take any AA batteries that may power it out, and put it back in the original packaging. Wrap that original packaging with tinfoil, and then put it inside the Faraday cage, and the tinfoil is not touching any of the outer edge. So that is a double protection for that item inside. The point here is you must not allow that object itself to touch the outer metallic surface 
There are Faraday bags commercially available. We use them in law enforcement. If we have certain situations where we confiscate a telephone, we will immediately put that inside a Faraday bag because we want to get a warrant for being able to go in and search that telephone. But what we don't want to happen is someone to be able to remotely destroy the information that's on those telephones. We want to find out who their suppliers are. You can use those to protect phones, to protect small electronics. I mentioned the radio a while ago. The radio that I'm looking at would easily fit into one of these Faraday bags. There are various sizes of these bags available. Let's talk about a few of the items that you might want to put in there, and then we're going to wrap this thing up. Certainly, I would want to have an AM, FM radio in my Faraday cage. I want to be able to hear if there's anything being broadcast. Now, on AM radio, you may not have local stations that are transmitting, but AM radio, especially at night, can be heard from many, many hundreds of miles away, even thousands of miles away. If you want to get fancy, put a shortwave radio in there. Certainly some two-way radios that have been pre-programmed, And I would put an instruction manual in there and a manual list, a paper list of what channel is what frequency that is in there. You might want to put an old computer in your Faraday cage. I have some programming on one of my older laptops that I don't have on my new laptop, and I'm not using this laptop, but it will program various radios that we have. And so that might not be a bad idea to have in your Faraday cage. How about some old smartphones? Uh, Here's an actual use for those things. Old smartphones with apps that don't require having a signal. On one of my older smartphones that I no longer use, I have a number of apps on there that have a lot of prepping information. I have some apps that deal with plant identification. I have some that deal with first aid and medical issues. And so it's not a bad idea to have some of those old smartphones with apps that don't require a signal. Now, I'm addicted to reading, and I would like to put an e-reader loaded with books, loaded with manuals, and loaded with various prepping PDFs as well. Now, a AA battery charging device is a good thing to have in there. Uh, You might put some of the power banks in there. You can load them up with AA batteries, and you can plug a USB cord into that and plug it into your device. But you could build one of these as well with a battery or a series of batteries and run that to a cigarette lighter plug and then plug your cell phone charging device into that. So that's a good way to go. I have a set of lighter plugs that are three in a little box, and on the end of the wires of that are alligator clips. And when we're doing an event sometimes, I'll take that, and I will attach it with the alligator clips to the battery, or to a battery, and people are able to charge their cell phones by using that coming straight off of a 12-volt battery. And I have put the little cigarette lighter plug chargers in there. And so all they need to do is charge, is plug their cord into my charging device. 
and I actually have cords available for those that don't have them. Now, I would put a charging cable for each of these devices. Now, your charging cable is not going to be damaged by an EMP or a CME, but it's a good idea to have it there because when you open that Faraday cage, you've got a cable to be able to use, and you might be in a situation where you can't locate one somewhere else. So I like the idea of putting extra cables anywhere I store some type of device. In my EDC bag, I carry a radio, a two-way radio, carry it every day. And I keep charging cables for that radio in my EDC bag simply because if I'm somewhere and something happened and I had to charge that, I may not be where I have another cable stored. So it's not a bad idea. Now, batteries. Batteries should not be affected by an EMP or a CME. From the best research I have been able to see, the batteries themselves will not be affected. However, back to the same idea as having a cable available, I would go ahead and put some batteries in the Faraday cage of the various sizes of any devices that I have in there, just simply to have them in that location. Now, I would use the 10-year shelf life non-rechargeable batteries, and I'd do that because rechargeable batteries tend to lose power or lose their charge too quickly. But if you have a way to put some type of rechargeable battery charger in there, if you're going to be able to build some type of a power system afterwards, you might consider doing that. You might consider putting an inverter in there so that you can have AC power off of 12 volt. And do not store batteries inside the devices because of leakage. We've all had that experience. We've all opened up a flashlight that we'd forgotten we had. It was in a drawer somewhere, and we opened it up, and those batteries have leaked and made that flashlight totally useless. Now, one other thing I like to put into a Faraday cage, and I carry them with me as well, is thumb drives. Go ahead and make copies of important documents, scan those in, put them onto a thumb drive, now, don't be sitting there saying, well, it's going to fry all the computers. Well, maybe so, but it may not. It's another way to be able to have important documents. Some folks are going to have stored that computer. Some folks may be able to read your information. Uh, we carry medical information. We carry copies of marriage licenses. We carry other copies of official documents that we might be needed, birth certificates and things like that. Now, those are not normally accepted as the legal document because it's not the certified, you know, has the stamp on it. In an SHTF situation, it might suffice. The idea is to have it is better than not to have it. Bottom line, I really don't know what will happen if we experience a large CME or an EMP. But I am becoming more and more concerned about the possibility of that. Looking at the world condition and some of the actors and some of the rogue nations that might just be willing to attack the United States or Europe, Asia, parts of Asia with an EMP, 
it kind of levels the playing field in their mind of being able to devastate a country without having to fully attack. Now, all we can do is depend on the Lord to get us through it, but we need to be making some preparations just in case. We'll see you next time. We have added a way for our listeners who would like to support the podcast to do so. We love our coffee, so you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash practicalprep and buy us a cup of coffee. That's buymeacoffee.com slash practicalprep. Thank you for listening to the podcast today, and please leave us a five-star review. That helps more people be able to hear this podcast. Share it with your friends and family. You can reach us on Facebook at Practical Prepping. Email at info at practicalprepping.info, and our website is practicalprepping.info. And as always, remember, stuff happens. Stay prepared.